Welcome to Joey Ito's Conversations. Today's conversation is with Martha Minow. She's a professor at the Harvard Law School and until recently was a dean of the law school. She's a friend and a mentor. And today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, forgiveness, the future of the law, and many really interesting topics. So good morning, Martha. Morning, Joey. Sorry to barge in to your house. It's so a pleasure. Good morning and apologies for Facebook folks for this early uh, live um, but as I explained a little bit, this is a, a sort of a regular thing where I'm trying to interview my friends. Um, and uh, I was talking to Jonathan Zetrain this morning, and he mentioned that it's actually probably um, great that I get to talk to you after you've left your <laughs> official position as dean of the Harvard Law School. Right. Um, but uh, I guess we, we, I first met you on the MacArthur Foundation board. Correct. But since then, uh, you've helped me with many things, and uh, uh, and you've been a great mentor to me on the on this path of trying to understand the relationship between the law and technology and society. And so I wanted. I, to I thought you were mentoring me, so that's. <laughs> <laughs> but but maybe can, can I start by asking sure. you a little bit about sort of your background and where sure. you came from, what you do? Of course, of course. So I uh, am a lawyer, um, uh, but before law school, I had a focus on education and equity and access and actually studied at Harvard and worked on school desegregation and related matters. I did uh, pursue uh, law and I was a law clerk. Uh, I was a law clerk for the chief judge of the District of Columbia, the federal circuit, uh, federal court there, uh, David Baslon, and then at the Supreme Court for Justice Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I started teaching shortly thereafter and was really lucky to find uh, that the role of a law professor allows, uh, if you want to, allows people to be involved in the world. And so since that time, I have litigated. I've been involved in law reform and a lot of other activities. Uh, many of them have taken me internationally. Um, so I worked on the uh, Independent International Commission on Kosovo, for example, that was set up by the government of Sweden. And I became a consultant to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. So I've had uh, extraordinary chances to learn and meantime uh, to teach. Wow. Actually, it's interesting that you mentioned um, Justice Thurgood Marshall. I just mm -hmm. saw a documentary about him. Oh, um, and it was, it was so good. And I think it's coming out in October. It's coming out very soon. We're showing at the law school. Oh, you yes. are? Yes. Oh, you are. I need, to, I need to see it with law schools. I saw it with a bunch of our, our friends. And uh, um, it, it was it was it was kind of, it was stunning. Everybody was uh, you know one of those rare moments where everyone's crying yes. during uh, mm. a law movie. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen that often, or not not a good kind of cry no, no, anyway. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there was a bunch of things I wanted to talk to you about, but maybe first a little bit about what you're working on now. I think you're writing a. I don't know if you're allowed to give away your book before you. I write am. It. I am. I'm, I'm writing a book that's uh, overdue at the publisher on what role forgiveness should play in the legal system, mm -hmm. and there's a basic problem uh, about forgiveness and law. Uh, on the one hand, law is committed to treating likes alike, treating people the same, regardless of any personal characteristics. On the other hand, there's forgiveness or discretion mm -hmm. all over the legal system. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm interested in criminal law uh, mm -hmm. domestically and internationally. Uh, international criminal law really coming of age in the last uh, 15 years uh, following a big hiatus after World War II, mm -hmm. the Nuremberg trials, 
and then nothing, and now a a kind of explosion of international criminal justice. Criminal justice in the United States, you know, we are the most incarcerated state in the history of the planet. Um, uh, But I'm also interested in other kinds of forgiveness, so debt forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Consumer Mm -hmm. debt in this country, student Mm -hmm. debt, Mm -hmm. uh, I have on my mind, not just because I was dean, Mm -hmm. um, but also internationally and sovereign debt. and I'm also interested in, in forgiveness in the context of immigration and refugee mm-hmm, law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a big thing. It's this a week, big thing yeah. this week. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm also curious just try, to try to understand a little bit because I'm sort of making up some of my own theories as I go is, you know, in the context of trying to understand the law and artificial intelligence, I keep going. This is one of my problems. I always go to first principles and, and I get That's confused. That's a good thing. Yes. And, one of the things that I ended up with was why do we have the justice system anyway? Or maybe sure. more bluntly, you know, and this was actually, I think Adam Foss used it in one of his talks, but that the tool of the justice system that we have right now is prison. That's really the thing that you beat crime with. And that in, in, in another panel that we had talking about, um, of all things, um, pedophilia, um, mm. the year before last mm. in the Forbidden Research Conference that we did, it was an interesting conversation about how in Europe they tried to remediate sex offenders and pedophiles, and, yes. and they're trying to understand them. Whereas in the U.S., you sort of punish them, cordon them off from the public, mm-hmm. and try to keep them segregated, mm-hmm. and that you don't really expect them to reform. Um, and that while we talk about reforming criminals, it seems like, and I don't know if this is a puritanical thing or an American mm-hmm. thing, and, it, and and it's not just America, but that it seems like the punishment and cordoning off is a primary thing rather than trying to figure out what went wrong right. and either fixing the upstream, and this is sort of a common conversation, but fixing the upstream thing or somehow remediating the person. And I remember in the conversation with you and Shaka, you talked about mm-hmm. atonement mm-hmm. and how prisons aren't, aren't, prisons aren't really set up for people to atone or to be forgiven. And that if you think about it from a sort of societal um, healthy perspective, if you take away the sort of punishment for sins part, it's okay. Um, The the question is, I mean, if you're just designing the system, you took away the the morality aspect. It seems like it would be better if we focus more on on, mm-hmm. on reform? Well, it, it, it's actually a terrific question right now because I think there is a national conversation about these subjects. And it's also ironic because another word for prison is penitentiary. Yeah. And that, of course, comes from the penitent and repentance. Uh, the U.S. legal system, uh, if we want to focus on criminal justice, um, has always had three goals. Mm-hmm. They're in op- they don't all pull in the same direction. Uh, one goal is to, to deter. Mm-hmm. Uh, a second goal is to um, rehabilitate. Mm-hmm. And the third goal is to punish mm-hmm. um, or to its retribution is the way mm-hmm. that it's typically okay. described. We have had a tilt in the country for at least 40 years towards mm-hmm. the third. Mm-hmm. And the first two... 40 years? At least 40 years. Yeah, yeah. At least 40 years. And that's the period in which mass incarceration really exploded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, one of my colleagues now, uh, deceased, wrote a brilliant book about this, William Stunts, in which he explained the political economy. If you have elected prosecutors, which we do across the country, mm-hmm. you don't 
often get elected by saying, I'm going to reform people. You, mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. you get elected by saying, I'm going to be tough on crime. Mm-hmm. That's just one of the elements about why we pushed in that direction. Mm-hmm. But we do have, the reason I say it's so timely right now, we do have a fascinating confluence of, of factors and of people with concerns recognizing what we have certainly doesn't work. Um, and so we have people motivated by evangelical Christianity, we have mm-hmm. people motivated by uh, cost-benefit analysis, uh, people motivated by concerns about racism, people mm-hmm. motivated by um, so many different kinds of uh, considerations. And there are uh, innovations uh, mm-hmm. across the country with, with uh, efforts to deflect people from the criminal justice system at every stage, um, whether it's before they actually get prosecuted, after they get prosecuted, before they get tried, after mm-hmm. they get tried, before they get sentenced, after they get sentenced, before they get uh, incarcerated, because people understand that those two other goals, mm-hmm. rehabilitation and deterrence, may not always be well served by just locking everybody up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But just as an example about this 40-year development, take juvenile justice, Mm -hmm. the treatment of young people. If you thought anybody was corrigible, anybody who could uh, change, Mm -hmm. you would think it would be young people. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the juvenile court was Mm -hmm. invented in the United States in 1901, Mm -hmm. the idea that they shouldn't be treated in the same court Today, across the country, juvenile courts look awfully like adult courts. Mm-hmm. And, and individuals who commit a crime, even if they're 10 or 12, are often treated mm-hmm. as adults mm-hmm. if it's a serious crime. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, some of them are even incarcerated with adults. So mm-hmm. what was once a very progressive idea in the United States, we're going to treat young people differently, mm-hmm. it's almost disappeared. And, and so you, you think it's the nature of politics that's driving one of the main drivers to push us towards this sort of retribution style. I I do think it's a factor, but you pointed to the puritanical dimensions Mm -hmm. of the United States. I think that's some of it. I think it is also, you know, what have been the successful political memes Mm -hmm. of the last Mm -hmm. uh, couple of decades. And law and order Mm -hmm. has definitely Mm -hmm. been a Mm -hmm. a tried and true uh, technique. But we're seeing this now with uh, with uh, President Trump's uh, effort to his decision to pardon uh, mm-hmm. Sheriff Arpaio, mm-hmm. who is widely viewed as an emblem of mm-hmm. you know uh, law and order run amok. Mm-hmm. Um, and here you have the President of the United States mm-hmm. uh, expressing his forgiveness for him, not for <laughs> the people that he has locked up in what he calls concentration camps. Yeah. It's fascinating. One of the things I'd love to talk to you about more sometime, but that we're looking a lot at is systems dynamics and design of systems. And you can go all the way back to sort of the uh, Jay Forrester and the models that Club of Rome and those folks did. And there's a consistent theme, which is that, you know, whether it's using progress to fight poverty or using being tough on crime to fight crime or tough on terror to fight terror. There are these systems where the more you do something, the more yes. it aggravates it, even though it feels like that. But it's And often it's because the tool that you have uh, is the yes. only one that you know. And in in systems with feedback, you, you, you get that. And I think one of the tricky parts is that uh, when you're founding a country, you can have a master designer that tries to balance everything and you have checks and balance. But once the thing is running, right. No one has the authority or the visibility 
to actually redesign a complex system. You really have to participate in it somehow. And we have a system of democracy where citizens are encouraged to participate. But it gets harder and harder as these reinforcement cycles become deeper and deeper. And it seems that, you know, and that is, is your role um, as both an educator and an influencer of mm. policymakers. I, re I remember, this may sound boastful, I guess slightly is, but when I was, when I, was I spent time with President Obama, he, you know, of all of the things that I mentioned, um, the fact that I knew you, he, he sort of giggled in glee about how, how, how wonderful that experience was. So you obviously have a lot of influence on policy, and I feel that that institution does. How, how do you think about sort of the role of institutions like the law school? And I mean, and, and, and how do we redesign sure. something like this? Because it feels like everybody has to change. There's a metaphor that some people uh, used in the 19th and the 18th century, really, uh, that was incorporated by some of the framers of the United States Constitution. And the metaphor was a clock mm -hmm. and machine that would go of itself. The idea was that you just set it going and then it'll keep going. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure that's true. Mm -hmm. I think that the uh, legal system uh, is not just one system. And it's many, many, many different institutions and people and players. And one of the critical elements to make it work is the development of a sense of uh, professional responsibility by those who are lawyers and judges and a sense of civic responsibility mm -hmm. by people who live in the society. So the jury, for example, mm -hmm. does not work if you don't have individuals who are willing to serve and who put their own personal interests aside. Mm -hmm. um, I think that... Um, at this moment, uh, we have so many other mechanisms for punishing people or shaming people than the formal legal system. Mm -hmm. You know, and Facebook is an mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. and the uh, social media is an example, and and understanding the disciplining power mm -hmm. of uh, the na the current environment, I think, is okay. one of our most important mm -hmm. activities. Indeed, I I would argue that our constitution has been implicitly amended. Mm -hmm. No formal process. Mm -hmm by the development of uh, modern technology. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There's, there's a um, book by Norbert Wiener called The Human Use of Human Beings. And we're just, uh -huh. I'm just writing a chapter for this reflection on the book. And, you know, we're, t and we're reflecting on sort of his thoughts in the age of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, but one of the things that he, he says in the book, which is interesting, is um, that, you know, machines like physical machines, robots are machines of steel, but that corporations are machines of flesh and blood. Mm. And I think one of the things that has emerged, I, I feel, is that, uh, you know, the, the corporation, uh, has, the, the rights of the corporation, I think, is sort of one sure. of the things that y you're talking about, has evolved into this Absolutely. entity that is sort of unknowable, uncontrollable. And, you know, getting back to systems dynamics, when you set a paradigm, mm -hmm. which I think is the paradigm of uh, finance as currency and this sort of goal of accumulating as much as you can at the expense of others and this notion that progress and growth are the only way that a society can be healthy. And so when you set those paradigms and goals and you sort of let it free into this mm -hmm. system, then it's kind of natural that something like a corporation would evolve to uh, become amortal, right, it doesn't die on its own, that is unconstrained 
compared much more unconstrained than a human being. And that in very interesting ways, it's been able to navigate around the law, whether we're talking about taxes or, or um, regulation, because it sort of it is kind of an AI where you have lots of lawyers inside of a corporation working to try to avoid constraints and, and lobbying uh, Congress. And this is one of Lawrence Lessig's things about corruption. But if you think about sort of the nature of the evolution of corporations within the system of law, and then you extrapolate, okay, so to me, because I think that we talk about AIs, I think AIs will just be integrated into, machines will just be integrated. They already are. They already but, are. But be integrated Smart into the system. And, yeah. And one of the main sort of units of thing, entities in the systems is a corporation. And so if a corporation is fueled by smarter and smarter systems, let's call them, I would rather call them more powerful systems. They're not necessarily smart. Mm -hmm. um, but you can sort of see how we're, you know, I think Larry would argue that we're, we, they're almost uncontrollable and unregulated, the corporation, at least if you include the financial impact that they mm -hmm. have. Um, but so, so one, one is, do you, does that sound appropriate? And two, as a system, how do we think about regulating them, regulating in that sort of, if, if you, right. I, I imagine them as sort of cancerous growths, you know, so, <laughs> so how, how do you, how do you somehow manage that? Well, gosh, a lot, a lot there. Um, I, I wanted to start on the point that you make about systems, and I will reveal myself to be a Trekkie. Uh, there's a wonderful mm -hmm. uh, Star Trek uh, Next Gen Generation episode where um, a terrible weapon uh, was destroyed by taking its parts and scattering them across the universe. And um, somebody decides to put it back together. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the critical element of the weapon is that it reflects back the anger and animosity of the one who's using it. Mm -hmm. So once it's all put together, the only way to stop it from destroying the world is for people to calm themselves and not mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. the fury. And that kind of injection, how do you inject in a system something mm -hmm. that's not what was expected is something that uh, intrigues me. Mm -hmm. When it comes to corporations, um, I, 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 it's, a, it's a very big subject. You know, I think that there's a kind of rational actor assumption that um, uh, anybody who has the ability to do so will try to externalize their costs. Mm -hmm. And the corporate structure allows for the externalization of a lot of costs. There was a, at its founding, the corporation was conceived of as a privilege that carried with it duties. Mm -hmm. And in, in the United States, we're very good at talking about rights. We're not so good talking about yep. duties. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I, I do believe we can do much more of and talk about duties to which constituencies mm -hmm. and, and what's enforceable and what's not enforceable. Um, I do think that there are, um, ways in which um, the complexity of contemporary society is the uh, most difficult uh, element because how can we have self-governance when most people can't conceive of mm -hmm. what are the forces that affect our lives mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and don't have the time mm -hmm. uh, or motivation mm -hmm. to try to understand it. Um, we never fully had everybody, you know, governing ourselves, but, mm -hmm. but now we have fewer and fewer people mm -hmm. who have mm -hmm. large influence. And that certainly is something that uh, Larry Lessig has written very cogently about. 
having said that, you know, one thing that I admire very much about the United States and, and our legal system is uh, what you might call federalism, that we have mm-hmm. local government, state mm-hmm. government, mm-hmm. national government. We also have the civil society, which mm-hmm. is another form of government. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, corporations can be a check on the government right now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I think that pluralism is mm-hmm. one of the best chances that we have not of a different system, but mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. avenues for people to affect their lives and the lives of others without uh, having to have a, a, a one person at the mm-hmm. top who can mm-hmm. control everything. So I suppose that if, and, and I think people will believe this in different degrees, but, and, and I'm not sure exactly that Larry's saying this, but if c- corporations have taken, have a lot of privilege in, influencing uh, legislation, let's say, mm-hmm. like for tax, for instance, they definitely have a lot of influence and probably for other things. Um, then I guess the, the, the in a way, though, the, the, to your point, civil society does have both the responsibility and the ability Absolutely. to probably intervene and, and check that. And, mm-hmm. and that, in a way, the media and our communication is probably key to engaging Absolutely. civil society in that conversation. I, yeah. I, I believe that uh, media and also education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sadly, civics as a subject mm-hmm. just has declined mm-hmm. uh, and isn't taught in schools across America, mm-hmm. partly because the social studies community had fights mm-hmm. and couldn't agree on what mm-hmm. the standards would be, and partly because it's been targeted in some mm-hmm. communities as being, you know, ideological in one way or another. Yeah. But to have two-thirds of Americans, according to some polls, who can't name the three branches of government, yeah. that's, a, that's, that's, that's worrisome. And, and, and that I do feel like there's, uh, there's maybe two, at least two problems. One is the, the vast majority of Americans being somewhat left behind. I think there yes. was some, I think it was Pew, but it was a study that showed that, you know, people believe, fewer people believe in evolution as a percentage than before. You know? yes. and, and so that's scary. On the other hand, there's also to me what I find now with Harvard and MIT, and now mm-hmm. that you you've allowed me with to to, to get involved with 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 the law school, is this um, uh, disciplinary boundaries. Yes. And yes, and one one of the most exciting things is when Jonathan Zetrain and I taught this course uh, in January. Um, Electrifying. For <laughs> it was students. it was great. Yes. And, and at least from my side, all of the engineers that I brought, um, you know, many of them were were you know, agitated by what they felt were unfairnesses that they saw from the perspective of a cryptographer or an engineer. And, but once they started hanging out with the government folks at the Kennedy School and the lawyers from mm-hmm. the law school, they realized that they could indeed change these Have things that laws. And, sure. and I think for many people, the law feels like a the laws of physics, something that you just can't change, right. you just learn. But when they realized that you could change it, that engaged them. Two of them are now fellows at the Berkman Center. Another one wants to work on a law. And I think that that's an interesting avenue into civics, which is, I think the problem, not a problem, but one fact is that the pathway to civics is usually through the humanities, through law, through government. And the people who come in that path are a certain set of people. But there's a whole other gang of people, the engineers, the scientists, who don't think of themselves as much as uh, people that ought to be participating in government. You might serve on a committee uh, right. or something like that, but you're sort of sectioned off into the sciences. And I think that 
today, you know, that, that may be an interesting way to engage. I think that's fantastic. And I think uh, it's true for law and also for media. I think that we need more people in media who understand the sciences and understand AI. And mm-hmm. um, this is our world. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think um, lawyers and people with knowledge about the legal system and about government have an obligation to mm-hmm. uh, decode and make more transparent. What are the levers of power? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. are the entry points for people? Um, and uh, I will never forget, though, my daughter saying to me, but do I have to do it full time? Mm-hmm. So what are the ways in which right. the people can participate and not have it take over their lives? And I think that uh, the, uh, social media and other mm-hmm. tools mm-hmm. actually enable mm-hmm. a kind of sharing um, that we haven't had. Mm-hmm. We haven't had before. It is interesting. There was a there was an article, and I can't remember now where I saw it, but it was a some study that showed that um, the digital natives mm-hmm. understand technology less than the previous generation, um, and I think they're users now rather than ah, creators, ah. and so they may understand the use of, but not necessarily the construction of. And I think one of the interesting conversations that we had in this class was when the when we were talking about the blockchain, we were talking mm-hmm. about cryptography, when the lawyers started to realize, hey, wait, can you, you can really do that? You can, yes. you can have a transaction where you can prove the result but not know the details. Or mm-hmm. that you can, and, and once they started realizing that, that, first of all, that the technology was as malleable as the law, yes. but also that they could do things that, they, that solved some of their problems in a technical way right. that they were having to build workarounds in a legal way. And so, so I think that, that making the law understandable, but also providing the lawyers with enough right. knowledge so that the, with the tools, because I, I, I do feel like we're the, the, I call them solutionists, but the technology industry are now selling, you know, these solve things, these doll houses sure. instead of sure. Legos, you know, and, sure. and, and they're not giving people tools to build their own stuff. And I think what happens then is you don't get the creativity of the user in the tool creation. And this is one of the things that right. we, we love to do at the, the Media Lab. And so it, it feels like, you know, there's some kind of, and whether we do it at, I think it has to happen at the education level, though. I think I it has too. to happen. It's the right place. You know, before you've sort of jumped into the production mode of your life. And before you're sorted into different disciplines, too. That's right. I also think that there's a hunger among so many people to be makers. Um, and we see this with maker spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the, the kinds of uh, uh, digital games that allow people to design their own world, their own characters, uh, they're actually these days more captivating mm-hmm. than ones that are mm-hmm. all pre-made. So... Um, I do think that there are ways in which um, we're kind of having a CP Snow two worlds problem. Right, exactly. That's, and, that's it. And we need to we need a modern CP Snow who mm-hmm. can say actually these two worlds need to talk with each other. Jonathan Zittrain made me read that in oh. January. <laughs> <laughs> CP Snow, look it up. Um. But, but you know, I'd be interested to know your thoughts about the prospects of smart or uh, powerful uh, sensors that may bypass what law used to be. So yeah. if I have my uh, my car is being photographed and automatically mm-hmm. viewed about whether or not I'm speeding, and then there's an automatic deduction from my mm-hmm. bank account mm-hmm. for a fine, it can all happen without 
mm-hmm. going through a formal legal system and also going through my brain yeah. so that I won't well, even learn about it. Well, well so, there's this, so this is where I, this question you answered earlier, deterrence, rehabilitation, and punishment, sort of starts to break down. Because if, for instance, you have perfect um, enforcement. Yes, Deterrence becomes a very weird thing because deterrence, a lot of it is the assumption that it costs too much to catch everyone. So you want to make an example of somebody to deter them. Well, if you can prevent somebody, but then they will then try to game it. Yes. So then it becomes more like a, like cyber warfare where each side is trying. This is how the tax code works, right? When you have a big, huge company, I won't name names. They right. They they both kind of go and it's just an escalation. Right. And this also leaves the poor behind, right? Because it's the people who can afford to try to circumvent the defenses. And Mm -hmm. so so it becomes more like warfare than than like what we can currently think of. And so you could imagine... You know, cars being equipped with systems to try to it well already with Undo. like ra- like radar sure. systems, sure, sure. like they if or like ways telling you where the speed yeah, traps are, right? True. So so people who can who know to do that will get around it, and it will be this like arms race. Um, I think that's one one issue, and 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 I think it's uh, interestingly, I th- I think what's going to happen also is you'll start to see a smearing out of the responsibility. So so for instance, um, you know. We're working on risk scores that mm-hmm. the judiciary use just to point it right at the judiciary. And if you use a risk score generated by an algorithm to for sentencing or for bail, right. you've suddenly pushed responsibility off onto this right. thing. But then you look at the thing and there's the software, there's the data, there's the people who entered the, the data. Choices being made. Choices being made. But no one part of it has enough responsibility. So. Yes. You can, and and the recent case, I think, by one of one of your students was that when somebody felt it was unfair, they couldn't force the company right. to, to disclose reveal. the alg- algorithm. Right. So it's, it's the, proprietary. It's proprietary. So so the, so one of the other I think hidden problems with the sort of uh, automation of a lot of the uh, uh, elements of the criminal justice system, everything from the sensors to the to the execution of it is. The, 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 that whole who, whose responsibility is it and the fact that it's so adaptable. Right. And this gets back to my earlier point about corporations is that because it's sort of a new thing that hasn't been contemplated in the mm-hmm. Constitution, really, it's pretty easy for it to find ways Navigate. around things. And so, and, and I feel like one of the things, for instance, to just pick on risk scores for a second is that right now it's a small enough thing. So to me, it's kind of like a, 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 a in an embryonic stage where it's growing, but it's not yet self-aware. I think once the risk score or the automated policing business becomes huge, then it will have a lobby, it will have money, right. it will have inertia. And so to me, when I see little flaws starting to emerge, it feels like it's the it's important time to pounce on to it and it try now. to figure out mm-hmm. what it needs to be doing. Should we, it's, it's, it's also like the, uh, Ron Rivest at MIT works a lot in um, online uh, digital voting. Yes. And there's a lot of evidence to show that we probably shouldn't do voting with machines because of the auditability and stuff like that. It might be that you should just pass a law that says right. no more machine voting machines. And it could be, depending on how we end up with this justice system, the answer could be you shouldn't be using machines in the judiciary, at least until we've redesigned it, because it introduces all these right. Well, we we do have evidence that if there's machine learning involved, that the machine will study the past patterns, and the past patterns have a 
racial bias, mm -hmm. and so uh, the machine will get smart and mm -hmm. uh, and be even more racially mm -hmm. tilted. So there are huge dangers. You know, it, it, the one other element that I want to add, though, is that the the idea that individuals can learn. Deterrence is predicated on the idea that something inside of us mm -hmm. is what has to change. That is bypassed by mm -hmm. all these systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm intrigued by some uh, Scandinavian countries now that are experimenting with doing away with traffic signals. Mm -hmm. Not something that I would recommend doing right away <laughs> in Boston. But, the, but the, the research seems to show that putting the responsibility back on people mm -hmm. to pay attention mm -hmm. actually reduces the risk of accidents more than relying on these machines. Yeah. And what worries me is the shifting of responsibility away from That's people. Right. Yeah. The risk scores are a perfect example. Um, I once uh, wrote a paper about uh, the avoiding anguish is what mm -hmm. judges try to do. Mm -hmm. Judges don't want to have the burden of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so find anything that you can point to and mm -hmm. defer mm -hmm. and say, well, it's not me. Mm -hmm. It's the law that told me or it's the risk score that told me. That's, I think, uh, the way uh, uh, in the wrong direction of what I think we need, which is greater sense of responsibility mm -hmm. for people who exercise power and greater sense of responsibility for all of us because mm -hmm. all of us have some power. And I think, again, this is why education is mm -hmm. so unbelievably important mm -hmm. um, so that we all learn about ourselves and our roles and our mm -hmm. possibilities and that actually someone is always mm -hmm. responsible even if it's mm -hmm. not visible. So I'm I'm going to go back to that point that you made about the Nordic countries using mm -hmm. getting rid of traffic signals because I feel like small countries like you know, Finland right. they're small enough so that the people trust the government and the government's small enough so that somebody can be a master designer and say hey let's think about changing everything whereas in the United States Japan some of these countries I, I think yeah. basically when you pass ten or twenty million people you get into this size where it's very difficult. But you're as close as anyone to the people who you would consider to be the designers. And it seems like fields like criminology or, you know, behavioral economics or just psychology to try to understand is what we're doing actually helping? Should yes. we reconsider these things? How does that, how would like, for instance, the traffic signal thing, if we were to would it happen in a local community first? Local community, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and there we could simulate some of the circumstances you describe in a country like Finland. You know, mm -hmm. if we started with uh, a, a city, maybe Cambridge, uh, Somerville, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yes, I think that's, again, the brilliance of a legal system that has authority at each of these levels um, and uh, experimentation. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Louis Brandeis, one of the great justices of the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. described the 50 states as laboratories mm -hmm. in which we have experiments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them won't go well. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. we haven't moved the entire system because mm -hmm. you're letting each of the local communities experiment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What we haven't done as well as we should inside of law and inside of government is build in a research capacity mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that we learn from the experiments mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and figure out were these comparable enough that they can be compared or were there mm -hmm. factors that were not at all uh, paid attention to and yet really explained what happened. And so, again, I think there's a really important role for educational institutions. Mm -hmm. and, and is, because at, at MIT, we're a research institution, so we 
that's what we do. I'm curious what the equivalent is on the law sure. side. So, for example, one of the conversations we had uh, at some roundtable on artificial intelligence was thinking about you know the future of the law and AI, and 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 someone brought up the idea that uh, or the point that the the, the the sentencing guidelines for judges was originally conceived to try to eliminate the biases of the judges. But in fact, when you poured on top of that the war on drugs and all these other things, that it really took away the slack that right. would have allowed a little bit more cushioning and that it increased unfairness and incarceration. And the question I had, two questions, I guess, is one is, was it really, truly the intent to eliminate bias, and was that a like a, 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 a an un, sort of untainted view? Mm -hmm. And and secondly, was sort of what went wrong? I guess. And the third question is, how do you then reflect on that as a sure. community of lawyers? To how do we fix this? What did, how did it go wrong? Is there an evidence based yes. process of redesign? Well, I think we're not um, as rigorous as we ought to be. But if ever there were an example of the legal system looking at one of its initiatives and saying mm, not so good, this is one of it. Um, so the sentencing guidelines were adopted not so much to eliminate bias as to eliminate dis, uh, divergence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the concern was, depending on what judge uh, an individual defendant uh, appeared before, mm -hmm. um, that would determine what happened more than the crime, more than uh, anything uh, objective. Um, and so there was an effort to try to, yes, restrict the discretion by judges. Um, it was combined with this period of time of greater uh, punitive attitudes about crime. So it ended up, uh, I think, um, having a net effect of more incarceration. And yes, I do think that there were racial biases built in and many of them exacerbated. You know, mm -hmm. the most famous one is the treatment of crack cocaine versus um, mm -hmm. other kinds of cocaine. Mm -hmm. Very different disparity, mm -hmm. a, a disparity in the kind of sanctioning and uh, with a um, intended or unintended effect on class and race because of the user patterns. But one of the things that I think has been was such a mistake about the sentencing guidelines from the get-go was imagining that the crucial place where where discretion and disparities occur is at sentencing, mm -hmm. whereas the legal system has right. disparity and discretion right. all the way through. Mm -hmm. Who gets arrested? Mm -hmm. Who gets stopped by the police? Who gets prosecuted? Mm -hmm. uh, what the charges are? What the charges are yeah. exactly? What lawyers you have? And mm -hmm. so. It was trying to adjust one little point in mm -hmm. the system when mm -hmm. the system is just seeping. Um, mm -hmm. And then if you s switch over to the civil side, so right now we have you know, people who are losing their, their homes, people who um, are uh, actually unable to secure any kind of uh, wage enforcement. Um, wage theft is a big issue, particularly for immigrants in this country. The legal system does not provide avenues for mm -hmm. so many people, mm -hmm. um, and yet other people are perfectly able to enforce their rights. And so the disparities are system-wide, and a lot of them have to do with money and who has access to resources. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to me, again, a place where AI and technology could be really helpful. Mm -hmm. 
we could have you know it possible to navigate legal systems much more like the way that you navigate Amazon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and create roles for people to actually feel like they're participating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean eBay now eBay mm-hmm. has a pretty mm-hmm. effective dispute mm-hmm. resolution system. Mm-hmm. There uh, are ways to involve people in dispute resolution systems to have you know crowdsourced mm-hmm. juries. Mm-hmm. I think that we. The legal system uh, and and lawyers in general historically have not run experiments, have not mm-hmm. um, done randomized controlled experiments, but I think now it's possible to do that and yep. then to study it and to mm-hmm. see what works. And, and I think the good news is there's an emergence of some interest in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a colleague, Jim Greiner, doing the first randomized controlled studies about access to justice, comparing mm-hmm. what's the effect of having a lawyer versus having a comic book that mm-hmm. describes the legal material versus some other oh, kind of resources. Oh, yes. Oh. That's interesting. I, I, and I feel that AI could go both ways. You know, I think that you know, it can, it could enable civil society to do things. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think, you know, and, and there's some ability for to influence that and some of it will just be how, how things play out. Um, you know, we, 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 we have an interesting project at the media lab called civil servant, which is a, a script that goes on to message boards and tries to model the biases and in, is a bot that intervenes. Um, and it's sort of the beginning of a bigger idea, which is, uh, you know, civil society having its own, tools uh for monitoring regulating and calling out and nudging um but the 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 problem here is that uh there is a law called the uh computer uh um, fraud and abuse act right which was created after war games back in the 80s and it makes it a felony to use an online computer in a way that's unintended by the owner which is the terms of service so if you go onto facebook and run a script you're a felon and so so that Wow. A problem. The, the I think the other big one is um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act mm-hmm. has a anti circumvention law for um, a component for uh, copyright um, protection technology. So if you have a script running on your car that you think is rogue, mm-hmm. um, you can't if it's protected um, with uh, some sort of copyright wow. protection. It's a felony wow. to uh, reverse engineer and try to figure out what it's doing, and so. What's happened, and, and, and this is where the corporate stuff becomes tricky, is, um, and, and then the other one, I'll, as a throw-in, I would say that the patent system right now is skewed uh, away from individuals and towards corporations where it's so easy to file patents, so hard to overturn them. So, 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 so for civil society, what we have is we have a, a number, two laws that cause felonies for things that you would need to do in order to control or check government or or corporations. The problem is that the the corporations really have uh, no incentive, actually yeah. anti incentive, to poke these things. And so, so again, I what I find is, and there are a number of lawyers concerned about this, but this always seems to get backburnered. And, and it sounds like great projects for our, uh, <laughs> for our no, seriously, for our, our uh, cyber clinic. So we actually had a successful mm-hmm. representation of two uh, researchers at Harvard who wanted to do reverse engineering of mm-hmm. some uh, medical devices, mm-hmm. which were patented. Mm-hmm. So it violated the patent. Mm-hmm. And uh, our students successfully represented them. Yeah. Um, they wanted to do the reverse engineering for safety reasons. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that we'd need to push back. So, so that that's also probably an interesting 
project is to try to help feed the law clinic Absolutely, with, with, with some great it. cases. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, and ed educate both sides. I, and, and I guess I'll just end with the last thing is you, you met Julia Anglin recently. I did. And uh, for Thank those you for who, introducing who, who don't know, us. I mean, she wrote one of the seminal papers on yes. machine bias and, and, but it took her a year and a half or something in data science to do that. And, and, you know, and she's a, she's a data science journalist and, you know, just on the educational system, you know, I, my students want to, are now excited about the law, but it takes three years to get a yes. JD. Yes. And, you know, that, and, and, and just the, 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 these institutions take so long to reform. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think we should do? Well, I think, among other things, we should collaborate. Mm -hmm. And we should connect um, people like uh, Julie with other people mm -hmm. uh, who have some skills but could learn some mm -hmm. from her. And I think your students with my students. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think it's uh, incumbent upon uh, educational institutions to figure out how to make available mm -hmm. and and more accessible uh, information not everybody needs to get three years of legal education but mm -hmm. everybody should learn something about law mm -hmm. so that uh, because it should be an empowering tool yeah and we can do that well we let, let's do that I think I think you know I think it's fortuitous that in a way that MIT doesn't have a law school because we can start from scratch. <laughs> I think it's truly excellent. And I think the collaborations to come will be very exciting. Thank you very much, Martha. Thank Looking you. Looking forward to working with you. Me too. Thanks. Me too.